Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Book Network. My name is Sarah Patterson, and I'm one of the sociology hosts here. Today, we'll be talking with Michael McCarthy about his book, Dismantling Solidarity, Capitalist Politics and American Pensions Since the New Deal. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Okay, so we're going to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a, I'm a sociologist, assistant professor of sociology at Marquette University in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences. I've been there for about two and a half years. Uh, before that, I did a, a postdoc in Cologne, Germany at the Max Planck um, Institute for the study of societies. And before that, I uh, got my PhD at NYU in sociology. But I, uh, I grew up in California. I've kind of long been interested in issues of labor and, and work. And it's kind of it's my background. Great. Thank you. Can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about how this book came about? Like I said, I've, I've uh, kind of long been interested in work. I, I grew up in a working class uh, background. Um, worked in construction for several years before I started taking night classes in college. So when I went back to school, I was I always kind of had an interested in the the issues and problems of working people. And when I went to grad school, I started sort of fishing around for a dissertation topic. Um, you know, and was broadly interested in unions and and questions about wages and benefits and things like that. Uh, and eventually started um, reading up on retirement issues and and pensions and. And before I knew it, really, I'd 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 uh, spent about a year and a half of my life just doing reading on, uh, you know, the technical aspects of of pensions and, and retirement systems. And by that point, I'd uh, um, so many sunken costs, I guess, in it that it kind of became, uh, you know, my my expertise. So I didn't really I didn't really go into um, grad school thinking I want to write a book about pensions. It just sort of uh, it kind of happened that way as I. As I, as I read more, I sort of got more invested into, into it, I guess. Well, let's go ahead and get into the topic of your book, which is Dismantling Solidarity. So first, I'd like to ask, you talk a lot in this book about the structural inequality built in the welfare system and the pension system. Can you speak more about that? Well, I guess it's, I guess it's helpful just to sort of lay out what the, what the main puzzle of the book is. Um, and one, one uh, window into this is the 2008 crisis uh, and its aftermath. Uh, basically, what happened uh, between around October of 2007 to October of 2008 is that stocks really plummeted in the U.S. stock market at about, I mean, they fell by about 37.5% over that year. And what this did was it really ate up the retirement savings in uh, many of the private retirement accounts, uh, most of which were things like 401ks and uh, individual retirement accounts. And uh, throughout throughout that year, that really put people um, that were kind of approaching retirement age at a double disadvantage. On the on the one hand, they were at risk of losing their jobs, but on the other hand, uh, they were also uh, losing their retirement assets. Um, overall, uh, if you look at uh, total losses in the U.S., four hundred one k's and and individual retirement accounts lost about two point four trillion dollars uh, worth of, worth of value. And if you can compare that to the OECD, the, the, the average loss across the OECD in, well, the total loss, excuse me, across the OECD in retirement plans was $5.4 trillion. So we, so we had this massive hit in 2008 to um, the retirement, essentially the uh, re- retirement plans in the, in the U.S. and abroad. Um, since then, uh, politicians have kind of painted a rosy picture about 
uh, their recovery. Um, we saw this under the Obama administration, uh, where where we we saw that um, a lot of the assets that were lost uh, about um, were basically recovered as the stock market recovered as well in in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, and now retirement balances in the U.S. are are well over nine trillion dollars. So they're they're basically above, right above where they were prior to two thousand eight, and so politicians kind of. It, they they look at this and sort of um, conclude that you know see the problems fixed, but that's um, that that misses some important um, facts. One is that most people are basically about five years behind in their retirement savings now. So they just have their their savings are just up to where they were prior to the crisis, where they should actually be much larger, right? Um. And the second thing is that uh, that is just the average. Uh, when we actually break it down, we find that about 45% of people that are, are relying on private pensions in the U.S., things like 401ks, um, have actually not seen their retirement savings recover and have actually seen further losses since 2009. And this basically, this basically is pointing to a real crisis in retirement where where the Government Accountability Office can find in 2005 that about half of all households age 55 and older don't have any retirement savings at all. So this is just to introduce the puzzle. The puzzle is basically how did we get here? How did, how did we get to a, a point in, um, uh, in planning for retirement and in dis- distributing uh, retirement income where uh, the bulk of people are at very, in a very precarious position and are at high risk of, of, of not having adequate amount of, of income uh, during their retirement. And that income itself is actually determined by fluctuations in the market. Like, you know, what, what you live on when you retire is actually determined by, um, by the market rather than by um, uh, guaranteed institutions and, and programs um, that will ensure a certain, um, uh, st- uh, a certain level of lifestyle after you retire. So I tr- so the book basically tries to understand how we got to where we are today with respect to that. Great. Thank you. One of the things you mentioned in your book is that U.S. senior citizens are actually worse off compared to their counterparts around the world. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, in a way that, that sort of gets to how the U.S. welfare state compares to welfare states in other places. And the pen- pension system is actually um, – just one aspect of that. So if we think about old age um, security, uh, we, we do see that older folks in the U.S. do tend to have higher rates of poverty than in um, other rich uh, capitalist countries, you know, places in Western and Northern Europe. This is in large part because the American um, welfare state in general, but also the, uh, the American uh, 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 um, retirement security system is, is a largely a private one. In, in, in the U.S., um, about 45% of retirement income uh, comes from fr- private pensions, where if, if we look at the OECD, the average is about 19%, about 19-20%. So despite having this really, you know, we have the Social Security program, right, which which is a public pension, despite having this, um, still uh, people get a large percentage of their retirement income through private occupational plans or just their own personal thrift. Um, and this is this is a real contrast. I mean, this is obvious in things like healthcare, where you know there for many people there is you know there's no universal single payer healthcare system that that guarantees it. Um, but it's also true in in um, with respect to pensions as, as well. And this, and this kind of, kind of, it kind of gets at sort of a, a, a bigger uh, difference between the American welfare state and the welfare states abroad, which is in, in the U S there's a much greater reliance on where people work uh, for the things that they need in life above and beyond their wage. So for pensions, for healthcare, for eye care, for dental care, a lot of this stuff is, is got through one's occupation. And, and the effect of that is that uh, in systems that tend to be more private, um, the the benefits tend to be distributed more regressively. So 
people that actually have better jobs that earn more money are actually more likely to get healthcare benefits and and more likely to get good pension um, uh, b- uh, benefits, uh, more likely to get dental and eye care than people that are kind of at most risk and need it the most in a way. Uh, so that's that's why you say that's why you see there's a lot more volatility in in, in both old old age um, income and poverty, but you see this across the spectrum in in healthcare just, uh, out, outcomes and access to dental. Um, all sorts, all, 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 all these kinds of benefits that that um, tend to, or uh, to be offered through sort of uh, through the state in, in in places like Northern Europe, but are actually offered through work in the U.S. Great, thank you for that. Um, one way in that I saw your book contributing to the literature is in talking about the way that state, the state, and policymakers have influenced the pension process. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, so the 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 main argument of of uh, of my book is basically what 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 the book tries to do is it looks at these three key episodes that have um, moved pension um, uh, or rather that have moved uh, income distribution in, for retirement uh, more and more towards the market. So if you, you know, the, the subtitle is capitalist politics and American pensions since the new deal, uh, because in the new deal period, we kind of saw this unfulfilled promise of cradle to grave security where people, even after their working life would have a secure existence. And this was kind of the, you know, the kernel at the heart of the, uh, the social security act, which was in 1938. You know, it was right at right at the heart of uh, Roosevelt's idea of freedom from want, right? This uh, one of his four freedoms that he talked that he famously talked about. Um, but the this was largely an unfulfilled promise. What what we what we saw since the New Deal is the progressive shift away from um, secure, publicly provided, uh, egalitarian, um, and and universally accessible. Uh, retirement income towards market mechanisms as the way to deal with uh, retirement insecurity. So while Social Security is a, r- a really important program, um, it, it, it basically has to be um, it has to it has to be supplemented with other forms of of, of income for the for the elderly. It, it, it accounts for about forty percent of the average wage earner's income in retirement. So that that additional amount that that you're living on needs to be supplemented from something else, and so so what the book does it sort of tries to understand how how that institution has changed since the New Deal, and what we find is that there's three key changes. The the first change is, is after World War II, where you get the establishment of uh, the private, really the private pension system on a large scale. There were private pensions before World War II, but it was really after World War II that you get the their establishment on a really large scale. It's primarily through um, collectively bargained plans that are being negotiated after uh, after World War II between employers and unions. Um, the next the next episode is basically the financialization of those plans. You 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 see that pension plans um, and the the funds in particular become financialized. They they their investment is more and more towards risky stock. They're chasing risk for returns. And this has important implications about about sort of how how they're attached to financial markets and how those markets then become the determinant for how well the people do that are relying on those plans. And then in the third phase, you see the the growth and establishment of um, 401k plans in the 1970s and 1980s, the a move away from what are called defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans, which no longer um, guarantee a certain amount of income for retirees once they once they stop working, um, but instead uh, employers put in a certain amount into a, a fund, oftentimes matching the amount that the employee puts into the fund, and that employee is responsible for investing that fund and growing, you know, growing their nest egg so that that they can live off of once they um once they retire. But if the if the fund 
like as happened in 2008, if there's a crisis and the fund sort of gets hit and those investments turn turn sour, then that's the employee's problem. So this is kind of like the long-term shift that the that the book is trying to understand. Like, how did we go from a system in which there was the possibility for an egalitarian, I call it solidaristic approach to retirement security to one where we basically put the onus on individuals um, or we are increasingly putting the onus on in individuals to come up with their retirement for themselves. And the the chapter that you, you, you mentioned, chapter three, is basically about that first episode where, where we, we find the establish we get the establishment of, of private pensions. Um, and in that, in that chapter, I kind of, uh, I, I explain that, um, uh, basically by, by, by doing a historical analysis of, of Truman, um, and, and unions, uh, in the immediate post-war period. And basically what I, what I find, which is kind of true across all of the chapters is that uh, the main the main driving force behind the installment of the private pension system in, after World War II is actually um, triggered by politicians themselves that that politicians are are kind of intervening into industrial relations and it's the result of of their their tinkering that helps establish this private pension system but the the system isn't established because Truman is somehow committed to private pensions. It's, it's established because politicians are trying to manage what they see as perceived crises in American capitalism. Um, in, the, in the case of, of Truman after World War II, we're, we're basically coming out of a war where labor manage and management relations were being regulated by wartime um, state institutions, things like the War Labor Board, uh, which kind of uh, kept strike, even though there, there were some wartime strikes, they, they kind of kept strikes at a minimum. It sort of kept labor management relations regularized. And after after World War II ended, all these institutions were essentially lifted. Right there was no there was no more wartime justification for the state actually enforcing um, regular production. Right. And um, Truman and I mean Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats, and Republicans all recognized that this this opened up the possibility for a huge scale in labor management conflict, and they wanted to avoid that at all costs. Um, most importantly, because they wanted to take take up or they, they wanted to use um, take advantage, excuse me, of market opportunities in in war torn Europe and Japan. They wanted to sort of uh, build the product products and make the things that would help remake those places and, and in turn bring more profit um, uh, back into the, back into the US um, but but labor and man, labor and management um, were actually not fully on board with this after the war uh, you know we get, get the eruption of the largest strike wave in US history to that point um, which happens despite the fact that the state is trying to enforce sort of like a labor peace, you know they have they have this. Truman holds the the president's labor management conference, uh, which is specifically intended to get uh, members of the business community and members of labor to sort of agree on a plan for labor peace, and he's unable to secure it. So so uh, so after that failure in in politics, um, there's a strike wave, and in that strike wave, one of the key things that that unions are pushing for is for fringe fringe benefits in addition to higher wages, things like healthcare plans and, and, and pension plans. And employers are perfectly happy to, to let stock and equipment sit idle and to actually not give in on any of these labor demands during these strikes. They're happy because um, there's this immediate decline right after the war in demand for their goods because wartime demand is ended. Um, but there also there's also this influx of 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 war labor that they can run as striking work uh, as as strike breakers if they if they want. So that there there was pretty weak leverage that labor had over uh, employers. So what the state does, how this gets to pensions, is what the state does is that that Truman and and his agencies actively intervene in these conflicts to pressure the pressure firms to to adopt 
private pensions for their employees. And the National Labor Labor Relations Board in 1948 makes a key um, ruling that pushes uh, that pushes um, employees to, to negotiate over these plans. And in 19, um, uh, I think late 1948, the Supreme Court basically rubber stamps that ruling, which makes it kind of r- rule of the land. And if you eventually get sort of the um, the employers kind of uh, give in on this and and Pensions get sort of um, get adopted across all these different industries. Now, I'm kind of talking for a while, but just to just to kind of conclude this, um, the follow-up question might be: Well, why is it that um, <clears throat> that Truman intervened in support of of unions as opposed to intervening to just uh, crush labor's demand or to uh, support um, firms, for instance, because a lot of Republicans and Southern Democrats during this period were saying, well, we should just, you know, we should move to sort of like shut down the shut down these strikes and, and shut down labor. And this is where the, the important sort of second part of my my kind of theory comes into it, that that labor's in, inter, inter, uh, politicians are intervening because they're trying to manage crises in capitalism. But the way that they actually are intervening is determined by the 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 level of class struggle in that in that moment and and we see that truman intervenes in support of labor demands precisely because labor is an actual is a is an important constituency within the 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 democratic party at this period they're, they're turning out large numbers of votes uh for northern democrats in the, all the major northern cities and they're they're an important uh a feature of 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 uh, democratic politics. And so while while his 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 main goal is to sort of to sort of intervene to to keep capitalist growth on course, the way he he intervenes and sort of how he chooses to do that is shaped by labor's role within the the Democratic Party. And that's that's how we get essentially the installment of the private pension system after World War II. Great, thank you. Uh just to talk more about post-World War II era you talk about how we moved um, in that era to private pensions, but you say it's a mistake to think that workers were in control of these new pension systems. Can you say more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so after you get the installment of the the private pension system, um, uh, it's funded. It's basically a funded system. So, so uh, employers and sometimes employees are, are paying into pension funds which is accumulating money and assets over time. And very quickly, these pension funds become very large. And, um, you know, it's, they, they go from essentially having, um, you know, a couple billion, do- you know, couple billion dollars in the early 1950s to having trillions of dollars by the 19, by the 1970s and 1980s. So in the, in the very early stages of this, um, many many labor unions recognized that there could be a real strategic advantage to controlling these funds, and um, unions like the United Mine Workers and um, their union leader John Lewis uh, pushed very hard to not only establish pension plans but to control those plans as well. Uh, we saw you see the United Steel Workers, the United Auto Workers, a, a number of major. Um, industrial unions, not just trying to win uh, pensions, but uh, but trying to control them too. Um, politicians saw this very early on, and and saw the real threat in it. And many commented in Congress of uh, on the danger uh, of of having um, unions control their funds because this is a ma- massive pool. Of, of capital, right? The massive, massive pool of investment. And there are all sorts of different ways that labor might be able to use them um, uh, in, in offensive purposes against firms as to, to invest in certain kinds of things to, that might benefit unions. Um, uh, one one uh, congressman said that if, uh, if unions were able to control these funds, they'd become basically a war chest and, and no government would be able to control unions. 
as a result. So, so uh, pol- politicians intervened um, very early in tr- trying to, uh, you know, wrest uh, possible control of this this finance these financial assets away from unions and turn them over to um, firms. And we see this. Um, we basically see this uh, happen first uh, with the Taft Hartley Act in 1947. The the Taft-Hartley Act is a very famous anti-labor piece of legislation. It does a does a number of things that are pretty well known. You know, bans secondary boycotts. It sort of there was um, non-communist affidavits that union members had to sign, sort of saying that they were not uh, affiliated in any way with the Communist Party. There was a there was a number of things that it did to try to kind of weaken labor. Uh, but, but one of the things that it did that a lot of people don't talk about is it regulates um, pensions. And one of the ways that it does that is by by imposing rules for how pension boards can be composed. Pension boards are basically the institutions that are set up to to govern pension funds, to decide where the money is invested and and who's gonna who's gonna sort of be the who's gonna manage the money, what kind of assets the money the, the money is gonna be invested in, that kind of stuff. Um, and what the Taft Hartley Act does is say that pension funds have to be composed of at least 50% employee excuse me employer representatives so so the the fund the fund board itself can't be any more than um, 50% union representatives basically it ensured that unions wouldn't be able to kind of control these funds um, and as a result the that the the employers that were kind of governing these boards moved those moved those Funds money um, into the stock market. Um, they 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 move them sort of into into finance, move them onto Wall Street, um, and invested that money just like they would invest any other pool of money. Right. Um, what's kind of interesting is that they they end up actually investing this money in ways that that really deeply hurts uh, the American labor movement and and also workers in other countries. Great. Can you say more about how it hurt workers? One one way to think about this is that as as pension funds get invested in finance, we have a a radical sort of transformation in where sort of firm capital is actually coming from in the U.S. So prior to this period, if you're if you're if you look at like let's look at 1945. If you look at 1945. Um, you know, the year right before the establishment of these plans, it's it's basically individuals and families, families like the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the DuPonts, that control the bulk of, of U.S. stocks in the U.S. 1945, individuals control 93% of all U.S. stocks, individuals and their families. By the mid-1970s, it's actually pension funds administered by, you know, institutional investors, fiduciaries that become the largest pool of equity anywhere in the world by, by the mid 1970s, uh, pension funds alone control about 25% of all U S stocks. So you get this, you get, you get this rat, this massive shift in where, where you where firms are getting their capital from. And increasingly it's pools of workers, workers, um, you know, essentially deferred income, right? It's, it's the income that they're going to get when they retire. Um, and, and so it, it, they invest this money into, into the stock market, but, the, but, and, and as a result, actually there, you know, these funds grow very large. They went from having about 26 billion in 1952 to about almost 11 trillion by 2007 before the crash. So one, so one reading of this might be, well, that's, that was a sound financial decision. You know, they moved their money into the, into wall street. They invested like other wall street investors. It was, this is a, this was a wise decision. Um, but that's, it doesn't turn out to be totally the case. Um, first, it, this this basically tied workers' retirement livelihoods to financial markets. So, so as so funds have actually, as financial markets have have gone up and down, as we've seen volatility there, we've seen volatility in in uh, the health of these funds, and some have actually fallen apart because of it. But uh, on an even deeper level, the funds were actually were 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 invested in those companies that that could 
guarantee um, or that word that word generating the best um, returns on their shares, and those actually turn out to be on balance more anti labor companies. So it's so it's it's com- companies that end up getting invested in um, a, a large chunk of them are actually com- companies that um, are are moving more and more up. Op- of their operations overseas that are employing very low wage labor that have very exploitative labor regimes, um, in other parts of the country, also in, in the U S they're, they're investing in, in, in corporations that, that they themselves could not organize. So the UAW and the international union of electrical workers had, um, about $61 million in their pension funds invested in Texas instruments in 19 in the mid 1970s and this was a company that they they themselves were trying to organize but but um they weren't able to um and so so they actually these funds are actually investing in in in, the, in those same companies if you think about it like this they're investing in the, the same companies that are actually contributing to the race to the bottom in work standards both in the US but elsewhere as well it's those same companies that have anti-labor politics or anti-labor um practices that end up sort of give, getting a uh, fund investment. And on top of this, uh, the, the funds themselves actually, uh, you know, even if, if you, if you say, okay, well, that's, those are all issues that are, that are not relevant to the individual who's going to be retiring, you know, the, you know, okay, maybe, maybe it's bad for labor somewhere else, but what about the person who just wants a stable retirement income? Even on that, on that point, they don't do that well. The fund investments end up sort of being lower than the than the um, than the returns that we find on the on the, on your major indexes like the S and P five hundred and the Dow Jones in industrial average. So it's it's you know they uh, uh, politics kind of intervenes in after World War II to turn these over to, into the hands of employers, and employers use these funds and finance uh, in such a way. That not only hurts workers in general, but but also hurts the individuals that are reliant on those funds for for their own retirement. Great, thank you. One of the examples that stuck out to me from your book was about the Teamsters um, and this idea of how multi-employer funds had more capacity to be controlled than single employer plans. Could you tell me more about that, please? Um, it's kind of an interesting little sub story, I guess. Uh, one of the kind of ways in which unions got around that that Taft-Hartley regulation I was talking about is is if they had what are called multi-employer plans. And there's basically two different kinds of pension plans along these lines. You can have single employer plans where usually one union is negotiating with one one employer over the pension plan. So it's like, like you know, the UAW is negotiating with Ford, you know, and, and they both they establish a pension fund. But you also have multi-employer plans, and these these are these are much more common in industries that have large unions that cover employees across a number of different that work in a number of different firms that have small firms. So usually, like things like transport or um, the building trades, construction, um, you have you'll have unions that represent uh, workers that work in a bunch of different firms, and I often work for small firms. And in the, in these cases, where you when you get the establishment of pension funds, it, it's usually a union a union coming together with a number of smaller employ employers to establish the fund. Now, in these situations, uh, what we've seen historically is that unions have been better able to control fund investments, even even though the funds are still composed 50% employ- employers and 50% union representatives. Um, uh, historically, unions have been better able to kind of like divide employers or sort of like get, get one to join their side on an issue. And um, they've basically had better luck in controlling their funds. The, 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 the union that has probably had the most control over its pension funds have been, has been the Teamsters. Um, and the Teamsters, uh, the Teamsters Fund, uh, you know, established by Jimmy Hoffa, the, the Central States Pension Fund, is it's you know, we all we all know it well because it had has it's had lots of financial problems. Um, 
the, the Teamsters Fund was was something that was kind of con- controlled by unions pretty early on. Um, and they invested in things like uh, union union uh, construction and and uh, and uh, union projects, but also lots of nefarious things too. I mean, this, the Teamsters Pension Fund was investing in in uh, you know sort uh, shady uh, Las Vegas deals and 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 casinos and, as well. So it's not like it was all great. Um, but the but but what's interesting there is that. Uh, the Teamsters are able to actually control their funds. You know, they they don't use them for very progressive purposes all the time, and oftentimes their management of the fund is is poor. Um, but they were able to kind of work around this this uh, this law in in the Taft Hartley Act to control their funds. Um, and what happens is is that in the early 1970s, um, a pension reform bill was passed uh, called called the called um, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. It was passed in 1974. Something that was it had been debated for a long time, debated since the Kennedy administration, and it was it was it was passed um, with with support from segments of of labor and segments of business. Labor or business weren't weren't united on it at all, and it it sort of regulated pension funds. It ensured to ensure that they would be more more sound. Um, it had a lot of has a lot of things that that it does. I'm happy to talk about. But one of the things in particular is that it sort of regulates in more detail how pension funds can actually invest. And there, there was this thing called the the prudent person. Rule. It used to be called the prudent man rule, but it's it's called the prudent person rule now. Um, and and what what that what that is is basically it's trying to uh, regulate how exactly fiduciaries allocate their investments when they're investing for somebody else. Because when you're investing for somebody else, you're, sp- you're supposed to be kind of investing on their behalf, right? You're, you're, uh, you're investing their money, their assets. And what the, the, the prudent person rule does is, is it basically makes very clear that, uh, that investments cannot be made for any other purpose than, um, than 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 achieving the highest rate of return as possible. So you can't you can't use a pension fund and sort of say I'm investing in this in worker run housing or or, or I'm investing this in an area that's undergoing um, deindustrialization or something like that because I think it's going to serve some social good um, because uh, that's not the main purpose of the fund in in legal terms. It's, the main purpose is to sort of generate money for retirement. So the 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 way in which the, this rule is enforced is basically how how exactly does one know what is the rate of return that's going to generate the highest? Uh, what, how what's the what's the investment that's going to generate the highest rate of return? How do we actually know that? Because all investments are essentially gambling anyway. What the the way this was enforced essentially is is by looking at dominant trends in Wall Street investment. And so if pension funds are, are not in line with dominant trends in Wall Street investment, which are increasingly invested in, in equities and um, in, in stocks with diversified portfolios, uh, then that's a sign that, that, the, that the investors aren't being financially prudent. And this, this was essentially the law that was used to go after Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters and and when we had all that stuff where uh, where where uh, the Teamsters were, um, you know, taken to court, Hoffa was taken to court. That was that was all around issues of their pension fund, uh, and the fact that they weren't actually investing it in in these um, these prudent ways. But the but the but the net result of that, like if you if you kind of move away from the Teamsters story and look at how that how that law affected pension investment more generally. It's basically made it more more difficult for pension funds to invest um, in ways that are seen as having a social good, or in ways that are seen as being uh, not having a negative impact on in, on 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 the environment or or things like that. It's it's sort of it's sort of um, it's further established this financialized model 
of of investment where where pension funds simply mirror trends in on Wall Street. So by by nineteen by 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 two thousand five two thousand six, you know, uh, we see that pension funds are are you know many of them invested in um, in basically these in, in these in these uh, in these mortgages uh, that end up being the cause of the two thousand eight crisis, right? Um, so it's uh, it's. It's it's had the net effect of further kind of tying uh, workers' uh, retirement income to these financial markets. Great, thank you. I'd like to go ahead and shift to talking about four hundred one ks and how that became the main model for today. Can you tell us more about that? So you get this you get this shift this this most recent shift towards four hundred one ks, which are very different in design from the the pensions and the funds that we've been talking about up to now. Uh, primarily in that they they're uh, tend not to be negotiated, so unions are not negotiating 401ks, and um, and you know if you if you have a 401k, you're it's not you and all your coworkers that are dependent on the funds. It's just you. It's your own personal fund, and um, there's no guarantee of uh, of any retirement income in a 401k. It all depends on how much um, how much income that fund generates. So it's much better. It's actually much better for our employee, employers. Employers like it because it's it's lower risk for them. If if you're an employer, you set up a 401k. Usually, your only obligation is to just contribute a certain amount of money uh, per month into the fund, and then fund managers deal with it. You know, uh, and if if the, if the fund goes in goes into a crisis or whatever, that's not. You, there's really no legal. Um, you're not legally bound to to. to to make up for losses, that's kind of on the employee employer's shoulders. And in general, this is this fits into a long a larger uh, shift, you know, a larger shift towards the market, which employers have been eager eager to get back to uh, since the the Social Security Act uh, in 1935. I mean, when I when I was in the when I was in the archive, I was you know looking through. Papers in the uh, the Chamber of Commerce or you know, National Association of Manufacturers, different sort of uh, different corporate archives and how they how they saw pension system and and over and over again I I saw um, whether it be in the perspective of individual um, business owners or, or or their associations the sentiment that we need to return to a a system of retirement income, which is, uh, which is primarily reliant on individual thrift. Like that is what, that's what American uh, capital has has wanted. They they'd prefer a system where where people have to come up with their retirement income on their own. I mean, for good reason. It's it's it makes it makes workers, uh, you know, they're 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 easier to manage when they're more dependent on their work. So what happens in in the 1970s is is kind of interesting because one way to think about that change is that that uh, 401ks are something that are kind of you know the direct result of the Reagan revolution or something like that like that Ronald Reagan and the the neoliberals kind of install the 401k system as part of like the neoliberal program but it actually that's that's kind of a, a that's a real simplification and not really what happens um Oftentimes we think about neoliberalism and the 1980s as a period of deregulation, as a period of the state kind of withdrawing from the market and letting um, and letting market forces kind of dictate how well people do and and the rise and fall of firms and things like that. But actually, what we find is is that um, that there was a there was an intense ratcheting up of regulation. In, in the 1970s and 1980s, in particular on the pension system. And the reason why uh, this happens is that uh, we have, uh, at the end of the Carter administration, this growing crisis of inflation. You know, we, uh, inflation rises by uh, up to almost 14% by March of 1980. And politicians see this growing inflation as being the cause or as excuse me, as being caused by um, labor unions. They were, they were operating with, with what uh, they call the cost push theory of inflation, which is 
which is basically, you know, if you read Milton Friedman's, the, there'll be stuff about how inflation's all about the, the amount of money in the economy. Nobody believed that. Everybody believed inflation, inflation was basically about class struggle. It's, it's about unions getting too powerful and then, and then demanding too, uh, wages. And then as wages go up, then prices go up and it's sort of this, it, it pushes up inflation. Um, and so politicians basically wanted to, uh, wanted to weaken labor as, as the main means of, of, of dealing with this inflation crisis. The, the main way they do this, of course, is with the, the Volcker shocks under under Paul Volcker, um, who was the the chair of the Federal Reserve um, in the late 1970s and and, and the, the early 1980s, where he's basically manipulating interest rates to make it harder for firms to borrow, so firms are more inclined to cut their costs um, and to sort of go after after their unions. Um, but the but for our purposes, and then there's a that's there's a whole big story about that. You know, you, we get into that. Um, but it's a, that's a long story. But for our purposes, one of the additional things that they did was was actually increased regulations on pensions to to weaken the unions that actually had control over them. Unions like, like the Teamsters. These were these these were the unions that that um, that policymakers and economic advisors to Reagan saw as the main unions that were driving up the wage and the main reason for inflation. And so. Um, so they basically increased regulations on pensions. Um, the Department of Labor under Reagan uh, tried to go over unions like the Teamsters, for instance, which, with a much stronger hand. And uh, one, one of their ways of doing that was actually in pursuing these violations in pension fund management. And one of the kind of the unintended things that they do is they, they make the, the regulatory environment around pensions more and more complicated. And this kind of ironically is something that biz, business doesn't like business is sort of say, uh, saying, you know, you know, why are you increasing these regulations? They're already, they're already costly as it is. Um, and actually Reagan, when he ran for president, he he ran under the, under the idea that he was going to repeal the employee retirement uh, income security act of 1974, but he actually just made it stronger. He made it more robust in a number of ways. Um, and it's not, it's actually not until, Clinton uh, in 1996 that the first law is passed that actually liberalizes, you know, it deregulates pension regulation. So what's what's the effect of this and how does this actually relate to 401ks? Well, the, the effect of this is that um, if you look at the data and you look at the cost of having a pension plan for firms, it drastically it drastically goes up uh, uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s. The cost of administering a, a defined benefit plan, in particular, 401ks are not, were not, are not regulated, or are not sort of, these are not the kinds of plans that were regulated by the laws that they're passing. Um, and this increase in uh, um, regulation also created a significant amount of uncertainty for the possibility of future regulation for these firms. And so, what you find is, is that basically, as, as regulation is increasing albeit to sort of be used as a way to break unions, firms getting hit with these higher costs or new firms that were being established are disincentivized to, 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 to offer defined benefit pension plans. Um, as they see the cost of having them go up, many just say we're not going to offer a pension plan at all. But a lot begin turning to these more individual retirement accounts like um, 401ks. And as a result, you get sort of the emergence of the 401k as a viable alternative to the defined benefit plan uh, for, for firms that want to give their employees some sort of, uh, you know, retirement um, security. Um, and by the by the 90s, uh, you know, 401ks had totally have totally replaced defined benefit plans. And and now I think it's 70 percent of workers with a with a with a pension plan. Um, have have just a, a 401k or a defined contribution plan. So they were kind of the inadvertent outcome of uh, of politicians trying to trying to break unions in a way and deal with the inflation crisis. Great, thank you. Um, so just to wrap up 
of the final chapter of your book, I would like to bring it back to something that we talked about earlier, this idea that the welfare state is a system of social stratification and how uh, this sort of transformed the pension system we have today. So where do you think we go from here? That's a really, that's a really good question. On the, the issue of being, welfare states being systems of stratification, I think, I think what we're seeing is, is, a, is a shift it's a decades-long shift, but I don't I don't see us changing course um, in any time in the immediate future. A shift towards a, a system which is more and more reliant on the market for retirement security, and this I think is uh, it, it rings true of a lot of our other policy areas as well. And and that's something that creates stratification within our workforce because one, the people that need these benefits the most because they don't have the money are the least likely to get it. The risk that's associated with with you know losing a job with with being all of a sudden coming into financial hardship is sort of shifted from employ employers onto employees, and as a result, it sort of I think it creates a lot more precarity. It creates a lot more uncertainty for people going into into retirement. And so that we're to the four hundred one k as as I see it, four hundred one ks are 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 kind of they're not the if if if. If we continue to follow the trend we're following now, they're not the end point. They're really, you know, maybe the second to last step before we get to a system of individual thrift where where people are sort of have to be fully reliant um, on their own savings, their families. You know, maybe you have a rich uncle or something who can you know help you out. That's that I think is where we're going. But but I, but I don't I don't think that it, that's an inevitable outcome. I think there's history. History shows that there that there are sort of moments in which in which. Uh, ordinary people can actually force policymakers to do things to establish more solidaristic welfare systems. But I, I'm not sure if that's going to happen anytime soon. Hopefully it does. Thank you, Michael, for speaking with us today. It was really a pleasure to talk to you more about your book. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're currently researching or working on? And I should just say uh, thank you to you too, Sarah. I've had a, I've had a good time talking to you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm starting to develop a, a project on finance and finance more broadly, trying to trying to figure out a way to test whether financialization actually uh, increases the capacity of of businesses to influence to influence politics. But that's a that's at a pretty early stage. I uh, hopefully I, hopefully I'll start to get into the real research on that uh, sometime pretty soon. That's 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 very long term. Other than that, I've just been uh, been doing various kind of op ed type writing and and doing stuff for the book. Great, that sounds like a super interesting project. Thanks again, Mike, for being on our show today. Thanks, Sarah. 